Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's so good to be back. Uh, it's so good to see you all. I'm Matt. I'm on the team here at St. Saviour's. Um, there's just one notice I think Matt forgot to give, uh, which is beers and carols this Wednesday, 8 p.m., Shaftesbury Tavern, just down the road on the corner. All the details are on the website. Um, it's it, it's going to be an amazing evening of singing carols in the Shaftesbury Tavern together, joy, laughter, life, and, um, and, and, a, and an event where we're reaching out, literally going into the community. So please do come. Uh, it's it's going to be loads of fun, 8 p.m. till about 9, 9.15 or so. They serve amazing food there as well. So... We're in the second week of Advent. Uh, how many mince pies have you had so far? Six. I think I heard someone shout out six <laughs> over there. The, the look of shame now. Uh, I think I've had four, maybe, um, uh, which is, um, is pretty good. Uh, have you put up your Christmas tree yet? Huh? Huh? Christmas trees up yet? I haven't, we haven't put up ours yet, but we hope to maybe get one uh, today. Also growing the, the Christmas beard. No, just kidding. That's, that's going to be going soon. Um, so we've been in a series called Jesus With, and I'm hoping, are things up on the screen? Yeah, perfect. So a series, Jesus With, and um, really it's been an Advent uh, series um, as we remind ourselves of how God comes to his creation in the ultimate expression of generous and gracious salvation love, entering history in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you look in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, uh, we read Matthew um, detailing this account of the Messiah to come. He's quoting Isaiah from the Old Testament, uh, and he says this, Behold, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus with us. Jesus most profoundly reveals the nature of God and who he is, and how he relates to his creation through Jesus, who is the invisible, uh, who is the image of the invisible God. So over the last few weeks in this series, we've been looking at who Jesus is, which tells us who God is. Uh, Matt opened up with how Jesus relates to sinners, people who are fragile and broken and fallen, and the powers of the world. Tyler Stanton came and spoke to us beautifully about the poor and how Jesus relates to the poor. Beck spoke about how Jesus relates to um, uh, our illness, our sickness, those who are sick and not well, and how he brings his presence to them and his healing power. Pete spoke about how Jesus relates to women. Kit last week spoke about how Jesus relates to his disciples. We were all, if we've chosen to follow Jesus, disciples of Jesus. And so today, we're going to look at how Jesus relates to the Gentiles. Ask your neighbor in the next 30 seconds, what is a Gentile? Go for it. Ask your neighbor, do you know what a Gentile is? Okay, you're forgiven for not knowing what a Gentile is. Uh, this is a complex passage, and even at face value, can seem a little bit on the offensive side. And so to unpack this passage, we're going to do a bit of theology to help us understand what's going on in this passage. Then we're going to dive into the passage and look at how Jesus breaks through barriers 
expectations and he breaks through. But before I start uh, diving into that, I want to share a quick story. Um, many years ago, uh, I grew up in South Africa, and as a child, I grew up in the apartheid uh, regime of the South African government coming to an end. Apartheid was a system of segregation, of classification, separating people of different races and ethnicities and backgrounds. And the privileged in that segregation was people who were white. Uh, who were the minority in South Africa, and everyone else was um, oppressed, particularly the, um, the black people of South Africa. And so as a child, I grew up uh, in, this, um, in this context, and uh, I was very fortunate to go to one of the first schools in Johannesburg, which refused to, um, to obey this apartheid policy. They said to the government, no, we're not going to segregate people. We're going to accept every single child uh, into our school that wants to come. And in 1990, four years before apartheid ended in South Africa, Nelson Mandela was released from 27 years in prison because he was a freedom fighter for uh, the end of apartheid. And very soon after his release from prison, his grandchildren actually started attending the school I was at. And uh, remarkably, because his children, his grandchildren attended the school, uh, he would sometimes come and visit uh, the school. And so one such uh, time uh, early in 1991, I was about seven or eight years old, um, uh, my, the class suddenly got very excited, very, very excited. People were running to the window. Who's that? Is that, is that Madiba? Is that Nelson Mandela? Particularly, my non-white uh, uh, classmates were so excited. And then the teacher opened the classroom door and they ran out towards him, shouting after him, Madiba, Mandela. I was unsure exactly what was going on. Um, I was aware of the apartheid and, and of injustice. But as a white child in that context, I wasn't um, aware of the struggle. I wasn't living the struggle like they were. And so Mandela came and shook all of the, the kids' hands. I think we've got a picture up. Um, remarkably, somebody took a picture. That's not me in the picture. Uh, and, um, and, and he chatted to them. And then he came to me, and uh, he chatted to me, you know, shook my hand. What's your name? And I just remember in that moment, um, immediately being struck by his enormous hands enfolding my little hand. And I, and I could feel the callousness of his hands from the enforced labor that he had to do in prison. And on that day, I comprehended a longing and an anticipation for the end of apartheid. I saw that in my classmates. The hope placed in that one man, Mandela, for what was to come a few years later in 1994. But on that morning, still in that place, we saw a glimpse of a free South Africa. We saw the rainbow nation of what was to come breaking through into that moment. And that story, in a small way, illustrates what we find Jesus doing in our passage today. A waiting, a longing for the breaking down of walls of division and oppression. A man, Jesus, who represents hope, who in fact was hope, and a moment, a glimpse of God's kingdom breaking through. And similarly, in today's passage and the story I've just shared, we can all relate. We all have moments or experiences of exclusion, of oppression, waiting and longing for healing perhaps, or breakthrough. 
We've been praying this morning, looking at the wider uh, longing of the world. COVID, war, famine, hunger. Lord, we cry, please come. Please break through. This is our Advent prayer. This is what Advent is. Come, Lord Jesus. So what is a Gentile? To answer this question, we're going to do a little bit of theology. And we're all theologians in this room. If you're wrestling with these questions, if you've ever had doubts, if you've ever wondered how uh, to make sense of the world, you're a theologian. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive into this theology. Um, I think the picture is up, creation, decreation, recreation. Uh, I've, I've decided to borrow this. We've seen it so many times. We've heard it spoken about so many times. I'm going there. Creation, decreation, recreation. Um, as always, a great place to start is at the beginning. And so in Genesis, we begin with creation. Um, a few weeks back, we looked at the doctrine of creation. Doctrine is the building blocks of how we begin to understand and comprehend the world around us. And in Genesis 1, this is a huge summary, but we find that the headline, God made all creation out of his sheer generosity and love. His sheer generosity and love. He is the source of all life and love. And because of this, everything that is made is inherent, has inherent value and purpose because it comes from God. And what is that purpose for all of us and for all creation? It's to glorify his name, to give back to, us, uh, to, give back to him what he has given to us, to live as he's called us to live, to be as he's called us to be. And so our purpose must be to respond to him. And we see a picture in Genesis of creation and humanity working in perfect unity with God. But then, as we all know, the fall comes. Decreation. Only uh, one chapter, two, two chapters later, uh, we see it all goes wrong. Genesis 3. Humanity turns away from its heavenly Father. Rather than God being the center of all creation, Humanity decides to turn away, cutting ourselves from, or from that inf- intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father, who is the source of all life and love. And as a result, what happens when you cut yourself off from the source of love and life? We fall. We fall into the bondage of sin and death. And this has ramifications for all uh, all of creation, a spiraling out of order, what God has called into order. Creation, decreation. Let's personalize this for a moment. This is a story we've heard time and time again, but we know this is true for all of us, if we're really honest with ourselves. We only just have to think about the prayers we were praying to know it's true in our wider world. We all fall short. Willingly, unwillingly, we have chosen ourselves over others. We have put ourselves before God. No matter how hard we try, even if it's only in the smallest way, sin and death are present in everything within us and around us. But God loves us. Remember creation? He made us in his love. Remember that old Sunday school hymn? He's got the whole world in his hands. You and me, baby, in his hands. (laughs) God loves us. It starts with his love, not with the fall. And so he pursues us. He immediately turns to seek us. We see this in the next chapters of of Genesis. And so begins the process of recreation. 
God's plan. In Genesis, the next book, Exodus, uh, the book after Genesis, God says in uh, chapter 6, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. God immediately comes and chooses a particular people from creation to once again be in relationship with them where humanity had turned away. And on this particular people, he pours out his blessing. Remember, we talked about blessing a few weeks ago with creation. Blessing means a privileged, intimate relationship with God. It means being connected back to that source of love and life. And we saw this in creation. God blesses creation and blesses humanity. And out of this particular people that God has blessed comes Jesus. Jesus comes in a particular time and a particular people in a particular place. And you may be thinking, this seems a bit unfair. Why uh, should God choose uh, a particular people? But this is what theologians call the scandal of the particular. The scandal of the particular. The hugeness of God's generous blessing, his love and life, contained in these moments and times with his people. But here's what's really important. God's blessing is always given so that it can be a blessing that overflows to others. You're blessed to be a blessing. His blessing is always for the blessing of others. Look at these verses. Uh, We turn to Genesis 12. Uh, It says this, I will make you, God's speaking to Abraham, the the person he's chosen, uh, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and I will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. How? Through the blessing I give you, all people will be blessed. Jesus uh, in Luke 4 says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his blessing. And then every church in Matthew 28, where we get drafted into his story, Jesus says this, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God blesses the particular so that they can be conduits of his blessing to the rest of the world. The scandal of the particular is God's plan for his love for all creation. The scandal of the particular becomes the commissioning of the blessed. If you take one thing from today, know that you are blessed. You may have struggled to walk through the door today or even log on online. But God today wants you to know that he loves you, that his life and love is for you. He wants to bless you. We've been worshipping, we've been praying, we've been putting our faith in him. No matter, even if it is the smallest seed covered in doubt, it is enough for the Lord. He wants to bless you. And he wants that blessing to then overflow beyond So you might be asking, okay, creation, decreation, 
recreation. But Matt, you still haven't answered. What is a Gentile? <laughs> so here we go. Uh, the English word that's uh, translated from the, from the Hebrew, um, from um, the Bible, that we get for Gentile is this word goyim. Goyim. And it literally means the nations. So we have the nations of Israel, God's people, and we have the Gentiles, the nations, everyone else. And it's really important to, to take note of this difference, the way God has chosen to unfold his mission of recreation in the world, a particular people, a particular nation, to be the blessing of all other nations. So let's dive into the passage. Matthew 15, Sam, thanks for reading for us. Matthew's gospel particularly seems to play on this tension between the difference between those that God has chosen, the nation God has chosen, the Israelites, and the Gentiles, the rest of the nations. And Matthew is addressing his gospel message to uh, early church, which would have had Jews who've become Gentiles, Israelites who've become, uh, sorry, Israelites who've become Christians, and Gentiles who will have become Christians. And now they're in this together, trying to work it out. What does it mean? What does it look like? And Matthew wrestles with this tension. This passage that Sam read for us is nestled between the feeding of the, of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. If you've not read those passages, go and read them. But basically, Jesus provides an abundance of bread. Bread is the symbol of life. Jesus is the bread of life. And what's left over? loads of bread. Uh, and then before this passage, specifically, Jesus is rebuking his own people, his own fellow countrymen, for prioritizing rules and regulations around, around what is clean and unclean, around what is uh, Jewish and not Jewish, what is Gentile. He's, they're prioritizing that over God's heart, the commandments to love God and to love neighbor. You love your neighbor. The Israelites had neighbors as well. They were called the Gentiles. And here's what I want to take from this passage, what I want us to take. In this passage, we see that Jesus breaks through these barriers. He breaks expectations around these barriers. Uh, and he, uh, he breaks through barriers, expectations, and breaking through. So breaking barriers. Firstly, we find Jesus breaking this cultural and geographic barrier that would ordinarily be in place. Uh, Jesus' ministry, as we see it in the Gospels, is, is almost, almost all of it is just to uh, his fellow Israelites. His disciples, the teachers of the law, uh, in the synagogue, he does healings, he does teachings, he does ministries, all mostly within the context of Israel. But here we find Jesus has withdrawn to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's Gentile territory. Uh, it's the territory of the nations. He's outside Israel, and that matters because this land was seen as spiritually unclean. To be uh, an Israelite stepping out would, to mean, would mean um, you're stepping into what God has not chosen or what they would have perceived as God has not chosen. And so in the Mishnah, which is the teaching guide for uh, Jewish people, it spells it out clearly. It says, the dwelling place of the Gentiles is unclean. So interestingly, Jesus has mentioned Tyre and Sidon earlier in Matthew. 
Um, uh, he's been teaching uh, his, 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 uh, the fellow Israelites, and um, he's struck that they are not responding to what he's saying. And he says in uh, Matthew 11, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are places within Israel. For if the, the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago and... Uh, uh, and uh, sorry, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you here in Israel. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've expected the Gentiles not to recognize me. I expected you to recognize me. But it's the people of the nations who are recognizing me. And so Jesus obliterates this physical barrier. He goes into the land of the Gentiles and he encounters this woman. Secondly, expectations. Let's go back to that idea of the scandal of the particular that we looked at at the start. We know the particular mission of Jesus was to restore God's relationship with his chosen people so that they would be a blessing to the rest of the world. How do we know that? Because Jesus says it here in the passage. He responds to the woman and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But this woman, this extraordinary woman of faith, will have heard about Jesus. She will have heard of the miracles, the teachings from afar. And she knows that her daughter needs healing. Even as an outsider, she sees who Jesus truly is, that through him she can receive this blessing. But she's obviously also aware of the cultural barriers between them, the expectations Jesus is a Jew. She's a Gentile. They're not supposed to interact, as we learned for a few weeks back from Pete's talk. The disciples play into this expectation. They act in their exclusive, arrogant way that any uh, Jew would to an, uh, a Gentile. Send her away, they say. She keeps crying out after us. Just send her away. And Jesus knows this too, but he doesn't send her away. She cries out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Sounds like an Advent prayer, doesn't it? A declaration of who he was. She sees he's Lord. He's the son of David. She's not, she's not Jewish, but she recognizes him as the son of David. She knows who he is. And she says, my daughter is, uh, is demon possessed. Note that contrast, the high of Lord, son of David, um, the heights of, of who God is, down to the demon possessed, the low of, of decreation. And Jesus responds seemingly to his disciples and to her. He doesn't acknowledge that he's uh, specifically responding to her here. He says his disciples are present, she's present. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He doesn't rebuke her or send her away. Rather, he initiates a conversation. His silence uh, in, evokes this conversation to continue, and she snatches at this opportunity. She gets on her knees in front of Jesus, a sign of worship, but also of expectant hope. And she prays the Advent prayer, Lord, help me. Lord, I need you. Lord, come. What Jesus then says requires a little bit of work because it is a little bit intense at face value. He responds... And again, his address in the text is aimed, again, at the disciples and the woman. He says, it is not right to take the children's bread, the children being the children of Israel, 
and toss it to the dogs. Now this is full on. At first glance, it's exactly how you might imagine it would go down. Jesus is outright naming the tension between Jew and Gentile. But let's look closer at this term, dog. If we translate, when we take the translation from the original Greek, I'm going to try and pronounce this Greek. Dog is translated from kuon, which would mean wild dog, squalid, stray dog, roaming around the streets looking for scraps. We see Paul use it in Philippians 3, where he's referring uh, to, he says, look out for the wild dogs. He's describing evil people. Obviously, this is a negative term, and sadly, one that the Israelites would have used disparagingly against the Gentiles. But here's the thing. That's not actually what Jesus says. He doesn't say it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the stray dogs roaming the streets. He flips what would have been expected and uses a similar but different word, and he likens the Gentiles in that moment, not to these stray dogs, but as Kwon Arion. That's not a great pronunciation, but it's a different word, which translates as adorable pets that reside in the house of its owner, a member of the family. If you've got a dog, you, or a cat, any kind of pet, you know, in a sense, they're a member of the family. And this is an invitation. Welcome to the table. The meaning of this translation is lost in the words. Now, it still sounds a little bit demeaning, But the question is, why does Jesus do this? Why does he interchange these words? Almost every scholar who looks at this passage says that Jesus is offering this woman to name in front of Jesus and his disciples the fullness of his mission, the fullness of his blessing, blessed to be a blessing to the nations. And she jumps at it. The woman eagerly and quickly snatches at the word play. Jesus has said, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And she replies, yes, it is, Lord. We all know that the dogs who are in the family home, they get the scraps sometimes more. Sometimes they get a plate for themselves. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. What this woman was prophetically declaring in that moment, that she was declaring what Jesus was about to do on the cross to reveal God's blessing, not just to the Israelites, but through the Israelites, through Jesus, to the rest of the world. Later in Matthew 28, Jesus says this. He sends his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus responds with faith to her faithfulness. We've been singing about the faithfulness of God this morning. As one commentator puts it, she demands the kingdom of God now in its fullness, even though it's not yet fully arrived. Remember my story from the beginning, that moment with Nelson Mandela, a moment, a glimpse of the free South Africa, what was to come, but hadn't yet arrived. And she demands that now in the same way. The disciples would have been absolutely astounded. You can't do this. You can't treat her like this. What are you thinking? And Jesus responds, not the way anyone would have expected, but with love, with grace, and his power poured out. Finally, breaking through. Let's not forget that the woman's daughter is healed. It's easy to miss this, the most remarkable point of the story. God breaks through. His kingdom comes. The decreation of creation is restored. Recreation begins. The blessing comes. 
The Gentile woman demands God's kingdom to come, but with faith and eager, uh, eagerly and with humble expectation, she effectively prays an Advent prayer. The Advent prayer Jesus gives to his disciples and to us here today. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That is our Advent prayer. Not just at Christmas. It's because of Christmas we pray it every day. It's because Jesus came that we can pray this prayer now. Lord, come. Your kingdom come. Let recreation come. I love what this uh, theologian Robin Wrigley Corr says. She says this. What Advent should teach us is that our attitude towards him, Jesus, should always be one of humble, eager expectancy. Our spiritual life depends on his perfect coming to us, far more than on our going to him. Every time a channel is made for him, he comes. Every time. He comes every time our hearts are open to him. He enters, bringing a fresh gift, a blessing of his very life. And on that life, we depend. So shall we stand? And we're going to continue to pray that Advent prayer. Lord Jesus, would you come? Would you come? Maybe just take a moment, be, be still, be silent, just reflect. And I just want to talk about barriers, expectations, and breakthrough. I'm going to pray this. Maybe just as we're still and quiet, you're aware of barriers within your own life, or the barriers of those around you. Maybe you feel unworthy, unclean, Maybe you've set up barriers for other people, saying they are not worthy. But Jesus is the benchmark of belonging. Jesus is the benchmark of belonging. Maybe words have been spoken over you. You can't do this. You're not worth that. How dare you step into that sphere? Why do you think you could say this to me? And Lord, we speak against those words. We speak against those barriers. Expectations. What are your expectations of God? What expectations have you placed on him? In this passage, we realize that Jesus shatters our expectations and reframes the conversation It's about him enlarging our hearts, not us telling him. We also need to think of the expectations we place on others. What do we expect of others and burden them with and weight them with? Once again, Jesus is the benchmark of our expectations. It's not what anybody else wants It's not what anybody else demands. It begins with Jesus. 
he comes to you and me and he invites us into relationship with him. And finally, breakthrough. In this series, we've spoken about healing already, but perhaps there's an area of healing where you want Jesus to come and break through. Maybe it's an area of division in family or with friends, work, financial, the list could go on. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, would you come? Lord Jesus, would you come? Come, Holy Spirit, come now, fall upon us.